0: Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today's episode, and this may end up either being a little bit longer or I may break this up into several different episodes, we're going to talk about back pain. And the kind of the foundation for this is a presentation I gave to a group of physicians. It was at their annual conference um, that they invited me to speak to and really talk about this topic because there's a lot of confusion here. And I was kind of looking through um, some of the old things that I've done in the past and trying to find some good information for you. And I realized that this is probably something that everybody should know. So really my goal here with this is to provide you information about back pain, stuff that absolutely positively you need to understand, stuff that, frankly, in the medical system alone, there isn't a good understanding of it, which is we're, we're going to touch on, which is one of the, some of the big problems that we have, Um and I, I, uh, my goal with all the things, just like with everything with straight Shot health talk, is to make it easily understandable and useful for you. Now, because this is a presentation that I give to a group of physicians, there may be some terms in here um, that may not uh, be easily understandable or that I don't recognize as being easily understandable because, um, as I think I've said in the past, when you really go to medical school, you're learning a different language. And then you use that language so much, you forget the, that people don't know the language that you're talking about. So if there's any confusion in this at all, please just write them down and go to straightshothealth.com. You can either post it under the episode itself. Um, you can there's a little contact email. You can send it to me because uh, I want to make sure that everything is very clear about this topic because this is a big, big deal. All right, let's start off again. What's what's really my criteria? What's my credibility for saying about talking about back pain? Um, as most of you know, I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm also fellowship trained in pain medicine, which means I went and did the extra year of training. I trained at a good institution. Um, you know, we were really outcomes-based, focusing on what was the results that we were trying to achieve. I then was a as associate program director when I was in the military. I was teaching, you know, Navy docs and Navy pain fellows about pain. I did a solo practice. Um, in which that really kind of changed my understanding. Because once I was by myself, after having all this breadth of experience, I realized that um, my results were, were no better than anybody else's. That's commonly, you know, physician's as arrogant was we are, we like to think that uh, any problems that there are in medicine is because of other physicians or other people and it's not us. And what I realized going from a group environment to a solo environment was, whoa, my g- outcomes were no different than they were in the group. So there was a major problem here. And that really was this sort of, Impetus for change really got me, really started to straight shot health talk because I realized that there's some huge, huge problems we have in medicine and healthcare in general. In um, particular, it all started with pain. Because if you look at chronic pain specifically, it's almost like a, if you took everything that is bad in healthcare and condensed it into one particular field, it would be pain. So all the problems that are seen in, in healthcare are really seen in in the world of pain management um, and uh, that's, again, when, once I started looking at the problems in pain management and pain medicine in general, uh, and then I started looking at the healthcare system overall, I was like, wow, this is really a reflection of an entire sick system. All right, so let's start with why is it un- understanding back pain important? And there's a number of different reasons for it. But number the big one is it's the second most common reason for all physician visits, at least in the United States, right? The number one most common reason. Um, are upper respiratory infections, cough, cold, congestion, sore throats, etc. When you take all those together, that is a little bit more common than back pain itself. But if you look at just a single problem, back pain, um, you can really consider either the number one complaint that people have, the number one reason for physician visits. If you kind of separate ear problems and sore throats and nose problems into separate categories, then it's definitely the most common reason. Uh, so back pain, number one reason that really people are going to the back to their doctor for. And then if you kind of look at the numbers of it, you'll realize that we're all going to get it. We're pretty much assured that we're going to have some episode of back pain in our life. So there's a lifetime prevalence of between 60 and 90%. It's almost like the longer you live, the more likely you're going to have an episode of back pain uh, if you haven't already. And this is very similar to both the industrialized, the Western world, you know, the United States, Canada, Great Britain, um, and the developing world. So countries that, that they don't have the healthcare system, uh, this, this giant complex that we have and the supposedly wonderful healthcare system that we have, uh, they also have back pain. The prevalence seems to be remarkably similar. Now, the disability rates, though, are very different. Meaning, if you look at people in the, in the developing world where they don't have uh, the healthcare systems that the industrialized world does, you don't see the disability due to back pain. And what is kind of an interesting phenomenon is as countries become more westernized, as they become more uh, westernized in their approach to medicine, the disability rates from back pain seem to go up. And that's a whole different topic on its own, but just seems like kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon that uh, develops with this. Now, back pain also is the most frequent workers' compensation claim, all right? Uh, it's the most common reason for people to go on early social security disability. That's before the age of 45. And the costs for treating back pain are abs- abs- absolutely astronomical. Over $100 billion a year in direct care costs, okay? That is not even considering the loss of productivity, the people who are not working, uh, and things like that. This is just in direct care costs alone. So the direct care costs are things like drugs, physician visits, physical therapy, procedures that they're done, surgery, etc. Those are direct care costs, and we're spending a huge sum of money on that every year. Um, other things that have been associated with back pain is we're using a lot more imaging. MRIs have increased over 300%. Uh, the procedures, particularly the pain procedures, epidural steroid injections, facet injections, burning nerves, etc., in the back, blah, 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 have increased, uh, depending on the, the particular procedure, anywhere from you know 130% for some to over 1,100% uh, for other some specific pr- procedures that are done, so massive massive increase in the rate of pain management type procedures, and then surgeries themselves have re- increased dramatically over three hundred percent for certain types. Um, what is a little bit more troubling is that the s- the more complex spinal fusions some of the f- the surgeries that have some of the worst outcomes when it comes to surgery seem to be uh, increasing at a much r- more rapid and dramatic rate than Other surgeries that are, uh, you know, smaller surgeries, um, some of which may have a little bit better outcomes, ones that are not fusion-oriented surgeries, and it has to deal with the type of back pain, et cetera. We will touch on that a little bit later. And then if you look at um, prescription drugs, in particular, opioid medications, you know, strong painkillers, these narcotic-based medications, are all um, kind of based upon the opium poppy in the past, and you have synthetic, and we have uh, different variants of it. Those have increased hugely, over 690% um, over the years, so much so that if you look at the the United States as a whole, you know, we're only 5% of the world's population. We're consuming 80% of all opioids. All right, but what of our outcomes then? We're spending all this money. We're doing all these procedures. We're doing surgeries, prescribing all these drugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have all these fancy imaging. We should be able to see everything right, and we can do whatever with it we should be getting better but that is not the case because disability rates due to back pain are increasing the complication rates associated with these procedures with these medications and with these surgeries are also increasing including the risk of death and when you actually ask people the people who have back pain and go through all this stuff there is no improvement overall in self reports and yet the costs continue to escalate now why is this right and before we kind of go into the why, we're going to touch on a couple of things. We need to do some definitions. We're going to touch on imaging, surgery procedures, and then we're going to touch on the drugs themselves. All right. So we're going to go back to pain here. Uh, this is a big topic for me because if you don't understand what you're treating, you're going to have a messed up treatment for it. OK. And when it comes to pain, almost no one seems to know what they're talking about. And this is talking, you know, and I'm, I'm, and I'm not trying to be harsh here and I'm not trying to be arrogant in any way because I honestly didn't understand this either and I was a fellowship trained pain physician I thought I knew as I was talking about I could spout out the definition of pain but I didn't understand or I didn't understand what that meant until I really stopped what I was doing and thought about it and really pondered it a little bit longer all right and I this this it still drives me crazy because, as I said, I lecture to physicians, I lecture to people, um, I talk about this, I teach about this, and there is so much bad information about pain that it's it's it just becomes almost difficult to overcome it. All right, so we're going to just touch on this again. I know I did an inc- a couple episodes entirely on pain. I am going to go back and do those again because there is some new information I need to re- update and make those better for you. But let's touch on some some. Let's just condense it for for right now, just for the purpose of this this episode. All right, so what is pain? Uh, if you look at the International Association for the Study of Pain back in 1994, here this is the definition. Pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms th- thereof. Now, that's always the fancy you know, medical speak that we like to use. We're sort of like lawyers. But we can break that down into some simple terms here. And so what is pain? Number one, it's unpleasant. It's not something that you enjoy. It has to be something that you want to avoid, that you don't like, et cetera. It's unpleasant. It is both sensory and emotional. And what does that mean? There is a, both a, a sensation, a body sensation, sometimes that cutting, poking, burning sensation. And then there is an emotional aspect. There's some sort of emotional processing that's going on. That's a brain-based phenomenon that kind of takes that sensation and creates the pain experience. All right? Now, you you can... We're ignoring that whole last part of that fancy definition when we talked about, you know, associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms thereof, because you do not have to have tissue damage in order to have pain. All right. And in fact, you can have tissue damage without pain, and you can have pain without tissue damage. All right. That whole extra part is not there. The important thing to remember is when you have pain, it doesn't necessarily mean your body is being harmed. All right. But it is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. Now, one important aspect here, and this is going to get a little bit more complicated, is there's a term called nociception, all right? And when you hear nociception, what nociception is, it's a signal. It's a nerve signal from the body. We have specific nerves, in the, particularly out in the periphery, that when they are stimulated, often by a burning sensation, like if you're actually touching something hot uh, or if there is a firm pressure or a cut... Those nociceptive fibers, of which there's different types, then send a signal to the brain, right? That signal, that nociceptive signal is not pain, all right? And there's a, a big difference between nociception and pain, but really nociception is just that it's the electrical spark and you can have nociceptive information going to your brain without pain, okay? Now, the big problem with that is because when people are often talking about pain, particularly if they're talking about discs and bulge and cuts and scratches and burns and such. What they're really talking about is nociception. So anybody's talking about doing something to the body to cure pain, they're talking about going after the nociceptive signal. Those terms really should not be used interchangeably. And, it's not, and the other part about it is you don't ever want to talk about things as being a pain pathway. All right. We don't like, you know, when I talk about nociception, I don't even like the word that they're a pain nerve. They're not. They're a nociceptive nerve. Pain is a central process. The other thing to remember is that acute pain, that is pain that is less than three months in duration, is not chronic pain. They're in a lot of ways different entities. And when we talk a little bit more about um, the pain process itself, we're going to kind of, you know, everything's involved. There's still a sensory and emotional process or a sensory emotional experience with acute pain and chronic pain. But what becomes more important, whether it's the sensation or the emotional aspect, uh, changes significantly, right? Um, With acute pain being, you know, there may be more of that sensory element, maybe more of that nociceptive signal, which is just a piece, that there's a little fiber that feeds into the pain experience. And again, it's not necessary. Um, Maybe more prominent when you're having acute pain. Acute pains are like broken legs, uh, you know, an acute heart attack when you're having crushing chest pain, if you fall and have trauma on your body, et cetera, Something that's happening now, right? And then with chronic pain, that's pain that has been there over three months. Again, uh, much more of a central process, the, the way that the brain takes information from the body, including nociceptive signals and other non-nociceptive signals, and can process those into a pain experience. It is much more a this reception agent, the way the brain particularly acts itself, okay? So there's a difference there. Now, can you do, you know, some of the techniques that are used for chronic pain will actually help acute pain. Uh, because despite you having the broken leg, you still have to have that awake brain that processes that, no, that nociceptive signal, that sensory information from the body in order to create the pain experience, right? So it's important to realize that, that there's that central role to anything that you can do to modulate that central component, that emotional brain-based phenomenon when it comes to the pain experience will help both acute and chronic pain. But when you look at therapies that treat only that peripheral environment, those no-susceptive signals, so we're talking about, you know, numbing injections in the spine, et cetera, those do absolutely nothing for that central component, that the brain-based phenomenon, the way that the brain actually processes information. So if you're blocking just a, a signal from one little tiny area of the back, there are still a billion other signals coming from your body. And if the brain itself it takes information and processes it in a way that creates pain, then any of those other areas that have not been numbed up can start transmitting that information and the brain can take that information and create a pain experience from it, which is why we see this kind of uh, wandering... uh, pattern when it comes to pain particularly if you have chronic pain you know you say your back hurts you inject your back then your shoulder hurts you inject your shoulder and then maybe you get a headache and then you do something in your head and after doing all that all of a sudden your back's hurting again because you're, it's sort of like this whack-a-mole game uh, because we haven't done anything to the processing unit the thing that that central driver that creates the pain experience all right now um, i'm going to talk a little bit about back pain but we're just going to skip ahead to risk factors. so if we look at the risk factors for the developing chronic disabling back pain what are they well one of the big ones is unemployment if you are unemployed due to back pain you are at a higher risk of developing disabling back pain Uh, another one is the pain intensity how how intense you describe your pain now that again does not imply it does not mean that there is a stronger nociceptive signal because the way that we can nociception being that signal coming from the body, that nerve transmission from the body, because the intensity of pain can be dialed up or down um, by by ways, you know, things that are outside the body the 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 trauma to the body if there is any trauma to the body so your emotional state um, whether you're in a threatening environment where you're scared um, you're under huge amounts of stress where you're extremely anxious where you're expecting harm all of those things can um, turn up and dial and amplify the pain experience itself but pain intensity is also associated with a risk factor for developing chronic disabling pain and a big one is back pain beliefs so what our beliefs beliefs are really this these fundamental ideals that you have um about what things mean. So when something occurs in your life, they kind of go through your belief filter, uh they create a meaning for you. And if you believe that your spine is you know disintegrating out from under you, that every movement you make if your back twinges means your back you're you're causing harm to yourself, if you don't expect that you're going to get well, um that has a significant Uh, risk factor for the development of of chronic disabling back pain. So back pain beliefs, just what you believe your outcome will be. Do you expect that you're going to heal or you expect that you're not going to heal? Some other risk factors are um, uh, bad coping skills. And these are, again, almost as an an entire topic on itself, but that goes into... um, some of the things that we've talked about in the past like active versus passive so going pursuing passive based therapies where you you need somebody else to do something to you massage uh you need somebody else to um you know manipulate you things that you're you're externalizing control over your body and your pain to somebody else uh versus more active coping mechanisms uh, me, you know, me-focused, like, or I-focused. I'm going to do this for my pain. I'm going to pursue this. It may hurt, but I'm going to do that. So when you're externalizing your control to something else, meaning you're expecting or or um, hoping that somebody else will do something for you, versus trying to do things for yourself and focusing on the th- on the activities and therapies that you can do or at least contribute actively to. Um, if you're doing that external type coping mechanism, that's a risk factor for developing chronic disabling back pain. And then such things as uh, is, you know, you know, widespread pain, pain much higher in intensity than the, the, the possible injury. That's like um, if you cut your finger and, and you scream and it, you're screaming bloody murder because if you, you know, it, it's like someone cut your arm off. Um, that's much higher than uh, what you would expect for the nature of the injury. High baseline impairment. If you already have disability to begin with, um, you already have uh, a lot of difficulties. You already have chronic pain. More risk, you know, more develop risk of developing chronic back pain. Um, and then the, the, some of the the other comorbidities, things like high degrees of anxiety, severe depression. Um, those have some risk factors associated with developing chronic back pain. There's a whole other reason for that in, in uh, those particular. I don't ever want anybody to think that um, anxiety or depression uh, are are diseases that aren't as severe or worse than somebody having severe heart disease, right? The outcomes with people who have anxiety and depression, those are serious, serious illnesses. Um, you know, treatments are very similar to a lot of the chronic conditions and focusing on it, but they're not something, you know, there's some, there's some degree of, uh, you know, when it comes to mental health issues and particularly in the United States, we're having a little bit better awareness about it, um, but they have some serious and um, quite prominent physio physiological effects things that, that they actually will do to your body so high degree of anxiety high degree of severe depression uh, increased risk factors for development of chronic low back pain now what i kind of want you to go think about though with these risk factors is what's missing here so as i said we've got unemployment pain intensity back pain beliefs coping skills um kind of uh, pain outside of, of to be expected for the nature of the injury, um, high impairment at baseline, meaning you have already have some disability, um, severe anxiety, depression. What are we not saying as a risk factor for the development of chronic low back pain? You know, I'm just going to kind of leave that there for a second here and let's keep going on. Now, imaging for low back pain, MRIs, x-rays, et cetera, Um, they've noted a problem with this, like the use of x-rays, et cetera, for back pain uh, since as early as 1976. And since that time, it's like, you know what, we're doing x-rays, et cetera, for back pain, but it doesn't seem to be changing how people do. And there's also a very wide geographic variation, meaning different areas of the United States have higher rates or lower rates of using x-rays or particularly MRIs as compared to other areas. And yet, what we see is it, it the areas that do a lot of MRIs um, don't seem to be doing any better. I'm going to touch on this in a second. Um, and there's also increasing a cost. There's a lot more money that's being spent on imaging, but they don't seem to be improving outcomes. All right. In fact, if you look at areas that have the highest rate of MRIs, people are getting them early, people that are getting often, People that are getting them, um, you know, every six months or a year or two, uh, I'm going to do little air quotes here, look around and see if, make sure nothing serious is going on or whatever, or monitor your back pain, whatever ridiculousness is being said. The outcomes are actually worse. Uh, and we're going to touch on some of the reasons why. So what is early imaging? Early imaging for back pain, you know, and there's a red flag conditions, which we're not going to talk about. They're very rare. But outside of those kind of red flag warning signs, if you're getting early imaging for your back pain, there is no increase in quality of care. In fact, it, um, it worsens quality of care. As I said, you're more likely to have surgery, more likely to have uh, invasive procedures done, your increased costs, more, more p- poor outcomes. Um, then some people will say, well, you know what, when we do early imaging, that it helps, helps people, it makes them feel better. Because then we can tell them that there's, you know, that we don't see anything serious in their back, et cetera. In fact, I've seen physicians comment on this and saying, uh, one of the quotes I saw was someone said, well, we don't like to order labs for people just to just to order labs if they want them, but you know what? X-rays and MRIs are okay because there's no harm. That is absolutely false. There are harms associated with this. They do not decrease patient anxiety. They do not make people feel better. In fact, if you have the right person, you will make them feel worse. Now, interestingly, this is not just for patients. I have now known multiple physicians that were, um, shall we say, I don't want to say silly, uh, but f- they had an episode of back pain. They had no red flag indicators or anything else. They should have known better, and yet they got, um, in some situations, X-rays and MRIs done, and um, it w- it wasn't good. Okay, it didn't do anything. There was again, there was no. What we would call serious conditions. There was no cancer. There was no infections in their spine. There was no instability in their spine. Um, and in those particular situations, though, so once you have seen in there, and once people have told you something, like you have a bulging disc or a bone spur or or, or degenerated or degenerative disc disease, none of which, by the way. Uh, have a strong association with pain because there's a bunch of people running around with them that don't have pain. But once you have that and that you fix that in your brain, every time you move, you start thinking, well, oh, is it that bulging disc or, or whatever? And I, I'm not, I'm not, I've known a, I've known a trained pain physician, a really good friend of mine that did that. Um, and he had, to be honest, he had one of the worst spines I've ever seen in my life. He's also the most physically fit person I've ever met in my life. And he just had an episode of acute back pain. He did not need that MRI, and and you know, there's a whole story about what that MRI ended led him to getting a, basically an angiogram of his heart. Anyway, but um, we also look at patient satisfaction. There's this big push with patient satisfaction. Blah blah blah. And we have done an episode on the past about that. When you have high rates of patient satisfaction, you actually have higher rates of death uh, and uh, morbidity associated with that there's you know the relationship you do not want to be the most satisfied patient with healthcare if someone is telling you everything that you want and you're happy that you're getting every procedure that you could possibly desire you're at greater risk of longer hospitalizations higher costs associated with medicare and risk of death and we did a previous episode on that so early imaging not associated or if it is associated with patient satisfaction seems to be mixed some people are more satisfied some people aren't now when we touch on this anxiety with imaging thing a little bit more and as I said, abnormal findings, bulging discs, degenerative uh, disc disease, bone spurs, et cetera, are common. In fact, they're so common, they're not disease. Degenerative disc disease is a complete misnomer. It is not a disease. There seems to be a genetic component to it, meaning some people have more degeneration, d- d- disc degeneration. What that basically means is the water, that kind of the water and the little spongy uh, intervertebral disc is going away. And you can see that change in MRI, but it's normal. And is like uh, the best explanation I ever heard is someone who said it's, it's essentially wrinkles in your spine. You have external wrinkles. Some of us seem to age a little bit faster than others, have more wrinkles, lose more hair, etc. And you have internal wrinkles, which is basically bone spurs, wear and tear on your spine, um, and just degeneration. These are completely normal. All right, They are not abnormal, but once you hear that, particularly labeled in such a threatening manner, degenerative disc disease, and I've actually had people thinking that their spine, they kind of misheard it, and they thought that their spines, they had disintegrating disc disease, and somehow that their spine was rotting out from their body as they moved around, right? Um, You know, and these disc changes start as youth. There is some interesting Korean studies of people with no pain at all, and they were seeing disc change and disc degeneration as early as 10 or 13 years old, all right? Just the way it is, folks. Uh, and then bony changes obviously increase with age. Again, internal versus external wrinkles. Right? But the big harm with this is the labeling component. Because, you know, as doctors, we want to help people. And we want to provide a diagnosis. Now, the really the thing that comes down, particularly my health system, is we are much better at telling you what you don't have. And I just did an episode on this. Versus what you do have, right? But you're likely, when you run into something like this, if you have back pain and if you are unlucky enough to have an MRI done early or even late in some situations, the doctor is going to want to tell you something thinking that it's going to make you feel better and says, oh, well, your back pain must be from your disc degeneration. That's false. We don't know. There, there is no good association with that. But now that that label has been stuck, and again, this happens with physicians as well, physicians who have these kind of imaging studies done, you are no more prone to believe that your back pain is coming from your bulging disc or whatever. Now, as we kind of touched on briefly with pain, uh, number one, that's impossible because pain is a central phenomenon. You have to have an awake brain. It's an experience. It's 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 not a, necessarily a noun. It's a verb. It's an action. And you have to, if there if you're, anybody's talking about anything coming from your back, you're talking about a nociceptive signal. Again, maybe if there's a nerve transmission coming from your spine. But the pain itself, all pain, all pain, and this upsets some people. But all pain, whether I, you know, chop off your leg, or you're having widespread pain throughout your body, like in fibromyalgia, all pain is central. It is all based in your brain, which means you have to have an awake brain to to create it. Um, you may feel sensations in your body, but those all that stuff is generated within your brain itself. So, anytime talking about your pain is coming from. Uh, you know, your spine, your body, your cut, your blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's not true. All pain is in the brain. It's only susception that is coming from your body. That's why those terms are not interchangeable. All right. So let's look at um, a couple things when we're looking at acute back pain and chronic back pain. All right. The vast majority, vast, 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 vast majority of acute back pain, that's pain less than three months, you already have a sudden onset of back pain, et cetera, improves without therapy. Okay. No treatments at all. Uh, it's really unpredictable. Um, if you do have early imaging, again, the abnormals are are normal. And serious causes of acute back pain, and what we were talking about with ser- serious causes of back pain, those are things like cancer, those are like things like infections within your spine, um, or if you've had severe trauma. You know, there's a mechanism there with instability in your spine, et cetera, bleeding in the spine. Almost always, almost, 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 almost always, because we can never say always, right? You can even say 99999 percent of the time, because there's always there's always something out in the in the periphery that we don't know, but almost always have a risk factor associated with them. All right. Without those risk factors, again, almost always it's going to improve, or it should improve if you let it and and try not to dwell on it. All right. Now chronic low back pain is a little bit different meaning it's there, it's been there for over three months, sometimes in years and years and duration. But the vast majority of chronic low back pain is what we would call stable, meaning over 84% of people are either improved over time or they have no change. Okay? Now, that's important to realize because you do not want to be getting MRIs every six months. You don't want to be getting MRIs every year. There's no reason to get an MRI for chronic low back pain if it's your chronic low back pain, all right? Because it's chronic, it's already been at some point ruled out that it was an infection, cancer, blah blah blah. When you would reevaluate it, is if there are new signs and sy- symptoms, or there's a development of different risk factors. Okay, and what that basically means is you have pain that's different. In that situation, you may go and get it evaluated to make sure there it is a not a new cause of pain. And those serious causes again, they have risk factors similar to the acute back pain. You know certain drugs that you may be using. Uh, you know, certain disease conditions, certain age associated with weight loss, et cetera. But you do not get imaging for chronic low back pain. You get imaging, x-rays, MRIs, et cetera, for new signs and symptoms, in which case it is no longer chronic low back pain. You're thinking of a different uh, a, a different type, a new onset kind of symptomatology there. All right. Okay, I'm not want to touch on that. Let's touch on surgery here. Surgery in the United States, we have the highest rates of back surgery in the world and it's increasing, right? This is also associated with increasing costs because the surgeries that are going up the most are the most complex surgeries, meaning we're implanting more hardware, we're doing these different approaches, you know, cutting you from behind and then filleting you from the front and flipping you over and doing all the stuff and putting in, replaced, you know, artificial discs and this, that, and the other thing. The fancier, fancier, fancier stuff, because there's there's a lot of money in this and there's a whole industry uh, in medical equipment that feeds this, um, but these high-complexity, high, high complexity, actually dangerous surgeries. They also have some of the highest risk of complications associated with them. Those are increasing at a faster rate and costs are increasing dramatically. We're not talking, you know, a couple thousand dollars. We're talking 50, 60, 70, 80, $100,000 surgeries. And what are our outcomes doing? They are not improving. Again, there is some suggestion that our outcomes with back pain are worsening in time in the United States. There's also a huge, what we call geographic variation when you look at surgeries for back pain. We're talking between eight and twenty times variation for rates of surgery being done. So you may be in one area and you may only have, you know, X number of surgeries being done. And say say there's a place where you have two two, two, uh, what am I trying to say? Two, two, you know, two surgeries every year for low back pain and you, you maybe have a thousand people in a village and there's only two people get surgery every year. And then the village, the next county over may only have a thousand people in it, but they're getting 40 uh, people every year having back surgery, right? That That's the that's the, the degree of variation in some of these different places throughout the country. So if you look at areas like Bend, Oregon, very high rate of sp- spinal surgery. Um, there's some, area, Idaho had some areas and, some, and we're talking like really, it can literally be town. It can be county. Um, you know, the counties sitting next to each other can have huge, huge difference in the rate of surgery. It, but when you look at the actual outcomes, the outcomes where people seem to be doing the best with their back pain, again, with the best surgical outcomes, meaning people seem to be improving I and mean, spine fusions and a lot of back surgeries don't have great outcomes to begin with. But the best outcomes are where the fewest surgeries are done, All right? So if there were if surgery was curing back pain, if it was doing great things, we for sure as heck, we would not be having a lot of back pain in this country. We do more than anywhere else in the world. Uh, and again, these areas where there's huge density, where there's just massive amounts of surgery going on, they should have the lowest rates of back pain if this stuff was working. And they don't. They have some of the worst rates when it comes to back pain, chronic disability, etc., Okay, and I'm just sort of skipping through a couple of things here because I was looking, I kind of went into more details about surgery, etc. Now, what about pain procedures? Now, these are the things that I uh, was trained to do and I taught people to do. There's things like epidural steroid injections, facet injections. Uh, we don't do those as much. Diagnostic medial branch blocks, which are a little bit different. Uh, Radio frequency, neurotomy, we're going and burning nerves out of the back, etc. Well, they're going up dramatically as well. You know, p- the the whole specialty of pain medicine where we manage pain really got a big kickoff in the mid nineties. We sort of paralleled this rise with the idea that pain was under treated and that there this is horrible problem everywhere all throughout the world. And, um, since that time, I think, God, when was the first real pain fellowship? Ninety. I can't remember exactly. Pretty close though, 96, 97, somewhere around there, uh, which is about the same time that the American pain society came out with their consensus statement on opioids and pain and that pain was under treated and we need to do it. Uh, which I will also say, um, I think we've we done an episode on that or not, but that that particular statement coincided with the release of OxyContin. There's all sorts of stuff and a huge dramatic rise in, in opioid use, which we're also going to touch on a little bit here. But anyway, that's when the whole world of pain uh, medicine began. So, you know, I learned these procedures and more people are doing these procedures. There's a whole bunch of people that never even did fellowships. In fact, there's tons of non-fellowship trained pain physicians. And I also also say, though, I have seen people, um, I've been lucky, particularly over the last year, to meet people who have some really prominent experience with pain. You know, you're talking about uh, some surgeons and some gastroenterologists that were never formally pain trained. And they are much better at understanding pain and treating people uh, than a lot of the pain specialists that I've met in my life and certainly where I was uh, three, four, or five years ago. Anyway, these pain procedures have increased dramatically. They are also associated with massive increases in costs. Uh, these are not cheap things, uh, maybe cheap in comparison to surgery, et cetera, but a uh, epidural steroid injection can cost anywhere from $300 to over $1,200. Um, there's, a num- you know, an increased numbers of people doing them. And if you look at the actual effectiveness, you know, there's been a lot of controversy over this. So if you look at that, uh, you know, the medical societies, the people I like to say who don't do them, the ones who don't have any uh, financial gain from this, meaning they're not paid to do these procedures, doesn't affect their livelihood anyway. But when they actually look at the data, they're sort of like a quality control idea, you know, almost like an auditor for any other organization in the world. And they look at, well, what about if you're doing blocks in the in the joints, if you're doing these neurotomies where you're you're burning nerves, if you're injecting and cauterizing, you know, burning the discs themselves, there's no good evidence supporting that they improve outcomes at all, all right? The studies that do are short, talking four to six weeks uh, in limit, which is not when you're looking at chronic pain. And chronic pain is certainly not a four to six week long process. You have to look a lot longer than that. Uh, and then if you look at epidural steroid injections, the most common uh, procedure done in pain, done all over the place, and it's done in some... St- totally whacked out ways uh i mean i've seen people have literally like six injections in all different areas of their spine um i've seen people getting epidural steroid injections every month which is which is absurd people getting you know massive amounts of steroid which can cause you know ulcers in your body and things i mean but the the data for their use is very limited basically meaning if you have pain less than six months it is pain going down your leg and it seems to be associated with a nerve being squished you know, you have a disc herniation that's pushing on that nerve and you have a complaint of symptoms in that same distribution of that nerve, then if you have an epidural, you may feel better uh, quicker. But the actual difference at six months is negligible, meaning people who had that epidural for that same thing, squished nerve by a, by a disc with symptoms consistent there, having the epidural versus not having the epidural after six months, there was no difference in outcomes. All right, that's very important to understand because if people actually heard that, I think, there would be a lot less epidurals done. All right, that's the only one that seemed to have a limited indication, again, only for less than six months, and again, long-term outcomes, no big difference. But if you look at these guidelines that come from all the different pain organizations, and there is over 37 different types of organizations that deal with pain, radiologists and pain physicians and anesthesiologist groups. Now, interestingly, when you look through their guidelines, they're so much different. They're basically say yes to everything. Yes, you can do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Well, maybe you don't want to do this one, but, you know, sometimes you can. Yes, 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 yes. Same evidence. Same studies. The only difference is one group is saying, you know, is looking at what we would call higher quality studies and don't have a financial gain from them. And the other organizations do have a financial organization, uh, you know, there is some financial component to it for them uh, and they include them and then they get mad and they're shouting arguments back and forth. Uh, but you know, I, what I would just say is, is who are you going to trust? Are you going to tr- tr- trust the outside third party or are you going to, tr- tr- you know, have the, some person that is um, really, really has, you know, their financial hand in the game. And this is again, not to say that all pain physicians are, are horrible, awful people. But some of these organizations are are questionable at best. And there is a lot more politicking. There is a lot more looking out for your livelihood going on uh, than most people realize. And uh, I'm not saying that lightly. I have seen it. I have talked to people. Uh, I have been at meetings where it was discussed uh, in a way that was um, uh, slightly disturbing. All right. So... Again, evidence and best practice for these things, there's not a lot of great, there's conflicting society guidelines, you know, physicians who don't do the injections, the third party ones kind of are saying they don't work and the ones who actually get paid for them uh, say they do work. There's a lot of politicking, you know, there's lots of quote-unquote grassroots where pain physicians are, are, or you know, organizations tell their members, these pain physicians to, you know, tell your patients that they need to lobby their congressman. There was a big hue and cry last year because the FDA was trying to come down on on uh, epidural steroid injections and uh, obviously didn't want to do that because that's a big source of livelihood here. Um, then there's there's other aspects to it, too. These injections are often sold that they say that people keep people from surgery. That's not true. The data doesn't support that. Seems that the more injections are done, um, the 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 higher rates of surgery that people say, well, you have these injections that keep people off of strong opioids because there's a host of problems with opioids uh, that's not true either uh, areas with high rates of injections and and doing a lot of injections seem to be associated with more rates of prescription drugs um, and so when I see those arguments and and I see it all the time in fact, if you actually go to a lot of websites uh, talking about back pain and injections, et cetera, uh you'll see some of these things saying, well, you know these interventional pain procedures keep people from surgery keep people off drugs and if I see that I know that nobody they're not they're not looking at the data they're actually not following the evidence because that's not true it simply has not been shown to do that all right now then we look at the influences of pain remember there's that that nociceptive signal is only the smallest and probably the least important component when it comes to the whole pain experience And we see things like psychosocial stressors. We look at when things are are workers' compensation, disability. If people are in active lawsuits, you know, there's litigation, they're in an accident. um, There are some sometimes conscious, but a lot of times subconscious conflicts going on. If the outcome of a lawsuit depends or is influenced on disability, pain, etc., then even if you don't think it's going to affect The outcome or how you're experiencing pain, it does. There's a whole current of subconscious things that go on in our brain. In fact, there's this kind of, you know, look at the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. You can see it as the the consciousness that we have. And then there's all that subconscious stuff going on that we don't like to think about, uh, but heavily, heavily, heavily influences uh, the way we process information. All right. And and it it does get uncomfortable at times, but it but it's true. And if if you actually take a step back or you have somebody take a step back and look at it, uh, sometimes they can kind of talk to you about that a little bit more. And then we look at the beliefs. Again, beliefs of harm, beliefs of healing, whether you think that anytime you feel pain, your spine is disintegrating. Huge, huge influence on the on pain. All right. Um I'm kind of running a little bit over here so what i'm going to do is i'm going to save when we talk about the drugs opioids and pain uh, for part two of this so overall what i want to just kind of sum up here with this episode is when it comes to back pain uh, outcomes with back pain in the united states some of the worst in the world uh, we have more therapies for it we're cutting poking drugging people more than anywhere else in the world we have conflicting d- 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 uh, uh, guidelines when it comes to it. it is a huge and huge, huge, hugely bit. Business in the United States that said over a hundred billion dollars a year in direct care costs. So that goes for surgery, injections, drugs, doctors' visits, therapy, etc. Um, but our outcomes are poor. All right. And so with the next part two of this, uh, we're going to talk about opioids. Those are the strong narcotics that come from the opium poppy, as well as some synthetic varieties, as well as chronic pain, and uh, touch on that a little bit more in further detail. All right, folks. So if you have any questions on this, if something is not clear. If I'm, you know, again, there, there's something coming up. She's Just visit straightshothealth.com. You can put a comment there. You can shoot me a note. There's been a couple different ways that you can contact me through there. And until next time, stay well.